Would you take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 today. Starting in verse 18, and so let me just remind you where we have been. Uh, Since the beginning of chapter 3, Moses has been at Mount Sinai, at the base of the mountain, also called Mount Horeb, at the burning bush, talking with God. And now, that has just ended. Verse 18 is the the first verse where he leaves the burning bush and he's on his way back to Egypt to meet with his people, to eventually go before Pharaoh, to do that which the Lord has called him to. Uh, But before he gets there, these verses from uh, verse 18 to the end of the chapter are somewhat of an interlude, a little interlude of how he gets there and what happens along the way. Some of the things that happen along the way are kind of odd. And you'll, you'll notice, perhaps, as we read these verses, or maybe you read them already, uh, there are, without doubt, some things in this passage that are hard to understand. And as I was studying them, I, I kept thinking of the quote that is commonly attributed to Mark Twain, whether he said it or not, I don't know. But he said, in response to being confronted with some of the real difficulties of things that are found in the Bible that are hard to understand, he said, It's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that worry me. It's the things I do understand that worry me. Which is to say, apart from the parts of Scripture that are just hard to know what to do with, there is so much that is so clear and ought to worry us, ought to be so troubling, ought to cause us to come to to some conviction that, that we simply don't live up to the standard that we are called to as believers in Christ. Well, I think this passage has a little bit of both. It has some things that I want to bring out for us that are certainly clear, uh, that teach us and instruct us, and it has some things that are very difficult, and hopefully we'll be able to to figure out how to make sense of those as well as we come to them. So, I know you're excited now to read it because I've introduced it so well. So let me ask you, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word today? Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. 
Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you today knowing that this is your word which is given to us for instruction with the, the introduction that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we ask that you will uh, apply your word to our hearts today. And Father, may we, like the Israelites, hear the good news that you, our Savior, has visited your people, seeing our affliction, and may we also bow our heads and worship. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there are some things in this text that are a little hard for us to understand and know what to do with, and there are some things that are very plain and speak to our hearts today. In fact, there are some things in this passage, I think it, it captures some of the most profound truths that we find in the Scripture, that they all sort of come together here. Uh, we see the sovereignty of God being exercised over our lives and over all the circumstances of our lives. We see something of the loving fatherhood of God. We see something of, of the importance of covenant obedience. And we see, at the end, the proper response of sincere worship to the Lord, having seen something of his grace and his mercy towards his people. And so, as we go into this text, one of my prayers for us today is that the things that are hard and the things that are difficult will not stand in the way of us seeing the good news in this passage. That they won't keep us now, they won't distract our minds so much that we miss what the main point of this passage is, that, that God is a good and gracious God who does see the affliction of his people. And he does visit them to redeem them out of that, and that therefore his people can come before him in worship. What, I, what I'd like to see here is, is something of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. In fact, I want to draw out four points that, that we see in this passage God's covenant plans, his covenant promises, something of covenant obedience, and covenant worship. And I don't just add the word covenant on there because that's a great Presbyterian and Reformed word, but because everything in this passage really does hinge on the fact that God is a God who has already entered into a covenant relationship with his people. If we didn't have that background before this passage, it would make no sense. Maybe I should say it would make less sense than it does already. But what we have is the background that God has already chosen Israel to be his people. We can go back to Genesis 12 and read where God called Abram, later Abraham, to be his people, to be the father of a nation of Israel, and gave him the promises that, that he would be the father of, of many nations, and that he would be their God, that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God has pledged himself as the God of the people Israel. He is their God. They are his people. We don't come into a passage like this just sort of out of the blue, as God is just addressing any people that he's suddenly stumbled upon. These are his covenant people. He is their covenant God. And we remember that, that God has called them just purely out of his grace. Purely out of his grace, he has chosen Israel out of all the nations of the world to be his people. Just as he's done for us today, he chooses us 
before we are even born, he sets his covenant love on his people and chooses us to be his. And they didn't have to earn that. Israel is a people that did not have to earn God's favor. It's easy for us sometimes to get confused on this point, especially when we're reading the Old Testament. Right? We can fall into this, this trap of thinking, okay, in the New Testament, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. When we read the Old Testament, and we think there's a lot of law here. I guess people were saved through their obedience to the law. But that's not right. In fact, remember at this point in Exodus 4, they don't even have the law yet. That doesn't even start to come until Exodus 20. So at this point, we know this for a fact, that they are saved purely by God's grace. And so it's, it's good for us. We, we read this and we remember, okay, first there's already a relationship in place. It's purely a relationship of God's grace. And it's God's grace that leads to our obedience. It's, it's not our obedience that earns or merits grace and favor from God, but it's God's grace first that changes our hearts and leads us to desire to obey. I think we, we often get the cart before the horse on this, and, and it, will, it will confuse this passage if we do. We need to remember the right context to read it in. So, so let's just walk through it and make sense of it as we go. Fourth points, God's covenant plans, his covenant promises, and God's people's covenant obedience and their covenant worship. His covenant plans come up first. If we see, uh, verse 18 just begins to give us the, the background that Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, uh, and he asks for permission to leave. We remember he's been serving Jethro as a shepherd for 40 years, and he asks now that he might go back to his people in Egypt to see if they're still alive. And his father-in-law says, go in peace. And the Lord tells him that those who are seeking his life are dead, and they go back to Egypt. Now, along the way, we get to verse 21, and the Lord meets Moses somewhere along the way, and he begins again to speak to Moses. And we see what he says. He gives him here in verse 21 a little bit of a preview of what God can expect. He kind of outlines prophetically how things are going to go when he gets to Egypt and when he goes before Pharaoh. I mean, how often do we wish that God would do something exactly like this for us? Right? Like, Lord, if I could just know the plan, sort of the five-year plan at this point to what I can expect and how my life is going to go, wouldn't that be great? Well, that's not how God works. We know that. He wants us to learn what it is to trust him instead, but this is a special case. In order to teach Moses and to teach us, he tells Moses. He says here in verse 21, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, the first thing God is doing here, I think, is, is he's assuring Moses that he is a God who has this all under control. Right? He is a God who is sovereign over the present, he's sovereign over the past, he's sovereign over the future. And so he can not only assure Moses of his presence, but he can tell Moses exactly what's going to happen. And it's going to happen this way because that's how God has ordained it to happen. Right? He, he's assuring Moses in, in that sense that this is a, a God who is sovereign over all things, that we serve a God who's in complete control. I think if Moses had just gone straight to Pharaoh and, and gone with all the confidence that this is exactly what God has called me to, 
I tried to get out of it five times. We were very clear. This is what God wants me to do. And yet he goes the first time and it doesn't work. What's he going to think? He's going to be devastated. He's going to be thrown into this slow of despond that, wait, I I was so sure that this was what the Lord had called me to. It it seems so, so clear at the time. So how can it be now that, that it's not going? It's not working. That I went to Pharaoh and it didn't, didn't go down. Isn't that often how it goes? We, we might sense something in our lives that perhaps we, we sense the Lord is calling us to something. Perhaps he's calling us to, to serve in a particular way. Perhaps he's calling us to uh, surrender, as we sang, a particular part of our lives that till now we had not wanted to surrender to him. And he's saying... He's, he's using his word and he's pressing that on our hearts and saying, now is the time. I'm calling you to take the next steps of obedience. And, and he brings conviction. We say, okay, Lord, it's not comfortable. I'm not sure how I feel about it. We try to get out of it five times. But he says, this is what I'm calling you to. And so we go and we do it. And immediately we run into opposition. And what do we think? We, well, I, I was so clear that the Lord had, had taught me this. I was so clear that the Lord was, was calling me to do this. And we run into opposition and we say, well, I guess I was wrong. I guess I was wrong. It happens all the time with people who perhaps are going into ministry and they're so sure the Lord has called them to serve him in a particular role in the ministry. And then they they get to a church and they become a a pastor or an elder or a deacon or what have you and, and it's harder than they thought. And there's opposition. And revival doesn't break out at their first word and they think, Lord, what's going on? But this is what we see is that opposition does not mean the Lord has not called you to a particular task. Just because it's difficult. In fact, here God assures Moses it's not going to work the first time. It's not going to work. And why is it not going to work? Some happenstance of, of circumstances in the future? No, because God has ordained it that way. He says, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, there is a whole host of theological depths that are involved in that statement. That God says, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. There is profound theology in that. And we're going to set that aside for right now. We're going to come back to that when we get to the plague narratives. So so don't worry, we'll get there, but not today. Because what I want to do today is to focus on Moses, not on Pharaoh. And how Moses responds to the Lord and, and how he responds to the Lord telling him this. Because five times, Lord, I tried to get out of it and, and finally I say, okay... And now you say it's not going to work. That doesn't mean the Lord hasn't called him to do this. It just means the Lord has not only ordained the call, he's also ordained the means. He's also ordained the the path that Moses is going to walk in obedience to the Lord's call. And so in our lives, isn't it the same way? We know what the Lord has called us to, to lives of obedience, to lives of, of surrender, of faithfulness and discipleship. And we will run into difficulty. It will cause trouble and trial. And we should not fall into the trap of thinking, well, I guess the Lord didn't ordain this because it's hard and it's not working like I thought it was going to. That might be the very sign that the Lord has called you to it. And he ordains not only the call, he ordains the path as well. What God says in Isaiah 46, he said, this is who he is. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. 
he will accomplish his purpose. That's who he is. And part of his purpose is not merely getting things done quickly and efficiently, but his purpose is also reforming and reshaping and molding our hearts, sometimes breaking down the remaining stony portions in our hearts. Moses had to be perplexed. Lord, that's not how I thought this would go. But God has purposes in it. And his purpose goes beyond simply getting Israel out of Egypt. That's one purpose. But he also has the purpose of molding and shaping Moses into a more patient, more faithful, more trusting man who's willing to wait on the Lord. He also has a purpose to display his glory before all Egypt. And he needs to work up to that. He needs to get it to a point where he flexes the strength of his right arm before all of Egypt and all of Israel, and they will see and know that the Lord, he is God. And so, in order to accomplish all his purpose, he's going to make known to Moses, here in verse 21, his covenant plans. This is the way it's going to go. It's not what you think, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let you go. That had to be... That had to be baffling to Moses when he first heard that. But here's where we get point two. That God doesn't merely give him these covenant plans. And actually, you know what? He gives him the plan. Do you see where the plan stops? See, he says, I'm going to send you there. You're going to demand that Pharaoh let Israel go. Here's how it's going to go. Pharaoh's going to say, no, that's because I've hardened his heart. And then you will bring this, this threat almost, right? If Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me, else I will kill your firstborn son. That's it. It's the end of the revelation of the future, the end of the plans given to Moses. Moses has got to be thinking, well, then what? How's he going to respond to that? Right? Let's, let's go a little further. But he just stops. He doesn't reveal the entire plan. He just, he just gives the first couple steps. And so we don't know exactly what's going to go on, but here's what we do know out of verses 22 and 23. He reveals the covenant relationship. You see, what he's doing here, he's not assuring Moses of every single step along the way so that Moses can purely walk by sight and say, okay, there's no faith required here because I know exactly how every step's going to go. That's not what he does. What he does instead is to reveal who he is and who Israel is. Israel is my firstborn son. Go and say, let my son go that he may serve me. What he does instead is assure Moses, not what he's going to do, he assures him who he is. Israel is God's firstborn son. I think it's interesting. If we go back to chapter 3, that's where God famously reveals who he is. Right? He reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. I am the Lord, the sovereign self-sustaining, uncreated, eternal God. He reveals who God is. I feel like now we get to chapter 4 and he says something of who Israel is. Israel is this God's firstborn son. That, that he has adopted his people. That the relationship between God and his people goes far beyond what, what the Egyptians would think of, of a relationship with a God. The Egyptians never would have thought of any of the many gods that they worshipped as being their father or them being that god's firstborn son or special possession or inheritance, any of that stuff. But to Moses, God says, Israel and Israel alone is my firstborn son. 
that had to mean something to Moses. That had to mean something to Israel, this poor, suffering nation that has been now 400 years enslaved in Egypt. 400 years. I mean, that's generations and generations and generations gone by that never knew any other life outside of slavery in Egypt. What must it meant for them to have heard this, to say, the Lord, the God of our fathers, the one that we used to hear these stories about, he is here again. He's revealed himself to Moses, and he, he says he has not cast us off. Right? They might be expecting to hear some word of finality of judgment. Okay, we've been in slavery this long, I guess it's over. But instead he comes and he says, you, Israel, are my firstborn son. This is a theme that, that we get very familiar with in the New Testament. Right? This idea that we as believers are adopted into God's family, that we're his sons, his daughters. We only see shadows of it in the Old Testament, and this is where it begins. This is where it begins. It's, it's interesting. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, says that adoption, adoption by God, this idea that believers are adopted into his family, not just saved, but adopted, he says this is the highest privilege given to a believer in Christ. The highest privilege. He said it's not the primary privilege because justification is the primary privilege. If, if sin and condemnation and wrath is our primary problem, then justification is the primary blessing. But he said adoption is the highest blessing because it goes beyond simple justification to say not only are you made right with God, but he adopts you into his family. In his love for you and his mercy towards you, he takes you not to be his people only, but to be his children, to be his family, to invite you to sit around the family table, to dine with him, to have access to him, to have the privilege of going before your father in prayer and having this intimate access to him. And to say, what more could Israel have wanted to hear from God at this time when they're in Egypt? What more could they have wanted to, to know that although their outward circumstances were still troubling, they were still in slavery, but to hear that they have been granted all the rights and all the privileges of the children of God, that he has not forgotten them, their God will never let them go, that they have communion with him, they have the privilege of prayer, the privilege of an inheritance, heavenly inheritance. That's what it means to be a son, is to have the inheritance. And if they're the firstborn son, they get the major portion of the inheritance. So they can say, with Martin Luther perhaps, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, though we may be in Egypt, with nothing in this life to look forward to except slavery and hard labor. Ah, our inheritance is in heaven. We are God's firstborn son, and someday all will be ours. All will be theirs in Christ. God has a purpose for them. He has a purpose for them here, and he comes to make that known to them. Their salvation, it's not accomplished yet. They're still in Egypt. But first, he, re he reveals to them who he is and who they are. And the last point that we'll get to at the end of this chapter, the people bow their heads and they worship, even though they're still in Egypt. They bow their heads and they worship the Lord. But first, before we get there, we need to read verses 24, 25, and 26, which are a little puzzling, to say the least. 
And this is the section I title Covenant Obedience, and I'll tell you why. That, that these are, are perplexing verses because it seems as though everything is moving the right direction. Things are going well. He's on his way back to Egypt to meet the people and to begin this great plan of redemption that the Lord has called him to. And all of a sudden, verse 24, at the lodging place, the Lord met him, presumably Moses, and sought to put him to death. What in the world? <laughs> Things were going so well, God. Why are you going to ruin the whole plan now? You spent a chapter and a half getting Moses on board with this idea, and now you're going to put him to death. And, and somehow in the midst of that, we see that his wife, Zipporah, knows exactly what to do. Although this seems kind of weird, she knows exactly what to do. She circumcises their son, uh, Gershom. Presumably it's Gershom. He was born a couple chapters ago. And that seems, to, that seems to fix the problem. The Lord relents. He sees that and uh, says, you are a bridegroom of blood, and, and the Lord relents. What, what in the world is going on with this passage? It's, it's odd, but I think it comes into focus if we remember at least two things. First of all, this is part of the reason why I, I've titled everything covenant. Covenant purposes, covenant plans, covenant obedience. Because we have to remember that God has entered into a covenant with his people. In fact, if we go back to the end of Exodus chapter 2, Exodus 2, 25, God saw the people of Israel. Oops, that's not the verse I wanted. 24, uh, 2, 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So we already know that God has been moved to intervene with his people because Specifically, he has remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham. Right? He remembers the relationship that they have. And do you remember what the, coven the covenant sign of that covenant was? God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision. And he said, from now on, every male that's born in your family must be circumcised. And if we go back to Exodus, or Genesis 17, verse 14, after he explains this whole thing, 17, 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. There's a play on words on being cut off there. And if the circumcision does not happen, the people will be cut off. Right? Because he has broken my covenant. Now, God comes to Moses here, and somehow it appears that his son has not been circumcised. In other words, God has remembered his covenant. It's, it's almost like in the joy and the excitement of remembering it, oh yeah, and he, he goes to Israel and he gives them these promises. I'm going to bring you up out of the land of slavery. Right? This was all prophesied beforehand in Genesis anyway, but this is how it plays out. That God's going to redeem them. He's going to bring them out of slavery. Why? Because of this covenant. I remember it. You're my people. I'm your God. Oh yeah, and the sign is circumcision. Oh wait, Gershom has not been circumcised. And the... the verse said very clearly that uh, the sign must be given and that anyone who was not circumcised has broken covenant and would be cut off. And so what's happening here is God appears to be enforcing the terms of the covenant. He's enforcing the terms of the covenant and he's coming against Moses to do exactly what he said would happen in Genesis 17, 14, that he's going to be cut off. And thank goodness his wife is thinking clearly and thinking quickly and she seems to save the day. 
we don't know what's going on with Moses at this point, but Zipporah jumps in, circumcises the son, and the Lord relents. Now, what does this mean for us? I, I think it means that God desires obedience. And this is interesting because this comes in the midst of a, a covenant of grace that Israel did not earn God's favor by their obedience. They earned their favor purely because the Lord is gracious and merciful and he set his love on them. Because he didn't see that they were the biggest nation or the strongest nation or the richest nation. He simply set his favor on them and said, you are my people. They did nothing to earn that. And yet, even in the midst of God's grace, it's his grace, remember, that leads us to obedience. It's his grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Right? We, it, it, isn't it easy to forget that? And to think, well, it's, it's law that teaches us how to obey. But no, Titus 2, it says, it's his, grace, his grace has appeared teaching us to say no to ungodliness. It's the heart that has truly been transformed by the grace of God that will desire to obey the Lord. It's the heart that has been transformed by the grace of God that will have new desires springing up within it, that will have new passions inside it that haven't been there before. And you say, whereas before I lived for, for me and for my desires, the truly regenerate heart that has been changed by the grace of God says, I actually desire now to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Right? Because it's this heart that can look back on verses 22 and 23 and say, Look at what the Lord has done for me purely out of his grace. He says, I am his firstborn son. And I didn't do anything to earn that, and yet somehow that good news has changed my heart in such a way that I desire to live as the firstborn son of my father. I desire to, to demonstrate what those family traits are like that a father passes on to his children and to live those out in my life. So it, it's, it's not any less gracious now of the Lord to come against Moses like this, but he is enforcing the strictures of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to interestingly happen again. There's this theme in Exodus that Moses goes through all these things individually in the beginning of the book that later happened to all of Israel together. And we're going to get to chapter 32 where all of the people, remember, they've built this golden calf. And do you remember how the Lord responds? He comes in anger and says, well, maybe I'm just going to wipe out this entire people. Moses, I'll just start over with you. Again, they are God's people, not because they earned it, but because of his grace. And yet, he looks on their disobedience, their flagrant, evil disobedience. And it rouses his anger, and it's, it's only because Moses intercedes that the Lord relents. I think the, the most striking example to me is, is 1 Corinthians 11, right? When Paul is teaching the people about the Lord's Supper. And he says to them, he teaches them what it means to come worthily to the Lord's table. It means discerning the Lord's body as you take. And he says no one should come unworthily not discerning the Lord's body because if you do that, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And, and he says, this is why... Some are sick and ill and have even died. But there were those in the Corinthian church that were being visited by the Lord in his discipline. Right? Fatherly discipline. Fatherly, tender, gracious discipline that in order to keep them from pers persisting 
in their disobedience that some were ill and some had even died. Which does not take anything away from the fact that we are in covenant with God purely by his grace. And yet God says, when you have known the grace of the Lord, when it has changed your heart, you begin to live in a new way. Grace must lead to obedience. And if it doesn't, then he says we need to go back and question whether or not there was truly grace that was applied to the heart. Because grace never leads to license, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 6 when he says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Right? If, if sin is always covered by grace, then should we just keep sinning so that there's all this grace, 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 grace? And he says, by no means. We have been united to Christ. How can we live in sin any longer? The grace that is followed by licentious living and, and sinning, that's not saving grace. That's not saving grace. There's a, a great line in our, our confession, uh, the Westminster Confession. It says that those who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered from the hands of our enemies, we may serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. He says anyone who grasps on to this idea that we're saved by grace and uses that as an excuse to live in sin or to cherish any lust, because that completely destroys the goal of that grace, which is that being delivered from sin, you may live before the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness. I believe that's exactly what's going on in this passage. Yes, Moses was chosen by God by his grace, but that was not to be an excuse for living how he wanted, for living like the Egyptians. It was to be it was to turn his heart to live now after the Lord. <clears throat> because those who know the good news of verses 22 and 23, that, that we are God's firstborn son, will live with the family traits. And that's what leads to the end of this chapter, covenant worship. Covenant worship. Look at the, the good example of Israel. They're not always a good example, but here they are. Starting in 29, Moses and Aaron gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and, he, and did, all, did the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They believed the word of the Lord when they heard that he had seen their affliction and visited his people. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. They're still in Egypt. The, the deliverance has not happened. There's, it's not till the next chapter, in fact. It gets worse. Now they're in chapter 5 making bricks without straw. It gets worse, and yet they hear the Lord has visited his people. The Lord has looked on us in his grace. He has remembered his covenant. He's come for us. And they bow their heads and they worship. Right? It doesn't mean they went to church. It doesn't mean they went to a, a worship service and went through the motions. It means their hearts were so changed by this good news that the Lord had visited his people in their affliction that all they could do was to bow their heads to the ground and worship the Lord for his goodness to his people. Because that's the response of a believing heart to the good news that God saves sinners. That's the response of a believing heart 
to hear that the Lord has visited his people and to bow their heads to the ground and to worship. That's why we're here today, isn't it? Because of the good news that God has looked on the affliction of his people. And he's purposed out of his love to send his son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, that he would come live a life we could not live and God would put him to death on our behalf that we might be saved. Not by killing the firstborn of the enemy, the Egyptians, but of his only begotten son, putting him to death that we might go free, that we, his firstborn son, might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. And so I want to invite you today to hear the word of the Lord, to believe, to believe the word of the Lord like it says the the Israelites did when they heard what the Lord had said, they believed and they bowed and they worshiped. Let's, Let's come to the Lord in our worship today. Come out of our cynicism, our hard heart inducing worldliness, out of our worry, out of our doubt, out of our fear, out of our troubles, our distractions, believing the Lord for his word of grace. You are his firstborn son. Would you come and worship the Lord together today? Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. We ask that now by the power of your spirit, you will take these words and and impress them on our hearts. Apply them to us that we might grow in godliness, that we might begin to display that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Father, that you might take the good news of Jesus Christ and all his mercy and grace and use it as the agent of transformation in our hearts, that we might not live as we did before, but that we might begin to live out of love for our Savior, following him, letting him lead us, and us surrendering all to him. May we do this not for ourselves, but for the glory of of Christ, that he might be lifted up, for he is a wonderful and great Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.